More than ever, I am super selective on how I spend my time, whether it's choosing which emails to read or how I get my continuing ed units. I want value for my time and efforts. I'm Shar Beauchart, and I bet you can relate. So when I say I get my CEUs from SpeechTherapyPD.com, just know their speech-language videos and pod courses are practical and totally worth it. And right now, you have the exclusive opportunity to pay less for the subscription than I did. <laughs> okay? Memorize this discount code. It's SHAR, C-H-A-R. Just go to SpeechTherapyPD.com, subscribe, and at checkout, type in what? SHAR, C-H-A-R. You get a $10 discount for heaven's sakes. <laughs> Do it now. It doesn't take long. SpeechTherapyPD.com. You and your speech kids will be glad you did. It's time well spent. Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Shar Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Have you ever heard someone say, Oh, oral motor doesn't work. It's been discredited in the literature. It's a done deal. We're done with oral motor. That's not completely true, and I'll prove it to you today. Welcome to part three of The Perfect Oral Motor Storm. In five podcasts, we're covering the oral motor controversy chronologically through well-researched documentation. I'm Shara Beauchart, and you know that if you've listened to parts one and two, or you've read the handouts, we've covered a lot already. Part one included the goals and overview of the controversy and the aberrant assumptions within the controversy. Part two included the first three of the five waves that have occurred over the past almost two decades evidence-based practice and its role in all of this, as well as the overview and critique of two major journal articles that essentially initiated the controversy, Dr. Loft's 2008 survey article and Dr. Forrest's comparative study. The podcasts are available on iTunes and Podbean, etc., and the pod courses as well as the handouts and the ASHA CEUs are at speechtherapypd.com, or you can access the handouts at speechdynamics.com. In Part 3, Today, we cover the fourth wave, research data, research on oral motor, plus a couple other interesting and relevant topics that primarily occurred during 2008 and 2009. This wave of research propelled the anti-oral motor sentiments to a whole new level. Bottom line, honestly and most disconcertedly, very little therapy that we do on a daily basis is actually proven in the literature. Oh boy, let's jump in. Let's first talk about the meaning of the word motor. In fact, how a person interprets the meaning of the word motor can impact your philosophy and your therapeutic choices. So I have two interpretations. Here's number one, neuromuscular therapy to those who work with individuals with known oral muscle impairments for example, acquired apraxia and or dysarthria, cerebral palsy, dysphagia, etc. Therapy on the muscle's substance is important. For example, building strength, range of motion, stretching the muscles, etc. Interpretation number two, movement therapy. To those who work with individuals with idiopathic or unknown etiologies, motor impairments for example, childhood apraxia or dysarthria, children with other characteristics, you know, the ones that fall within Dr. Schreiberg's new classification, speech motor delays that impact their speech production. Working with the movement of the muscles is important. Two different ways to interpret the word motor. My sense is that some researchers universally and automatically interpret the word motor and oral motor therapy needs as working on the muscle's substance, i.e. doing neuromuscular therapy. Therefore, when SLPs do oral motor therapy with speech sound children with idiopathic speech delays, the researchers believe it's folly. When in fact, when working with individuals and idiopathic speech delays, many SLPs focus on generating the child's oral sensory motor slash movement capabilities 
to do the speech movement production patterns. You might want to keep those two in mind as we go through these research articles. Introductory articles in the early 2000s. The fourth wave, the one that we're doing right now, represents the preponderance of research publications within a short time frame. And it was really overwhelming. I don't know if it was orchestrated, but the extreme number of articles that all focused on one topic, oral motor, was astounding. At least 16 journal articles, and I personally call them the Sweet 16, were published in 2008 and 2009 that questioned at best or disparaged at worst oral motor. The 16 are listed in a separate bibliography at the end of this document. Now, leading up to the Sweet 16, there were surprisingly few articles that disparaged the use of oral motor therapy to remediate speech sound delays. Some articles, however, did express concern about the use of non-speech tasks to assess and treat motor speech disorders, you know, adult apraxia and dysarthria. Now, Dr. Loff specifically mentions five references in his 2008 NSOMS survey article, and it's on page 93 of his article. He states, Evidence-based practice creates an interesting predicament because the efficacy of NSOMS, and I put in a little bracketed, you know, for example here, random blowing and cheek puffing, among other arbitrary activities, has been questioned based both on empirical data and on the basic underlying assumptions for their use. And he cites one, two, three, four, five articles. Clark, 2003 and 2005. Forrest, 2002. Comhe, 2006. And his own Loff article in 2003. Dr. Loff sets these five articles as the basis for his insom concerns that had not been proven effective in the laboratory setting, okay? So I specifically zeroed in on these five documents, anticipating that I would read studies on therapy that use these types of NSOM arbitrary oral activities or solid explanations that questioned their use. I did not find any controlled trials, and there, there were only brief references to the types of arbitrary activities or exercises that Dr. Loff referred to. They did not use the term NSOM. They did express concerns and questions about oral motor use, as well as other therapy techniques. I also found, however, positive and detailed descriptions of how to do oral motor tasks with individuals with motor-based disorders, activities that may be effective with adult apraxia, dysarthria, and dysphagia. I'll briefly review the first four above-mentioned articles. Ostensibly, they helped shape Dr. Loft's and Dr. Watson's views of oral motor. Also, they lead up to the Sweet 16 articles published in 2008 and 2009. So here's the first one. Heather Clark, 2003, Neuromuscular Treatments for Speech and Swallowing, a Tutorial. In my opinion, Dr. Clark is the go-to researcher and therapeutic instructor for working with known oral muscle impairments, acquired apraxia, dysarthria, and dysphagia. And in this 2003 tutorial article, in reference to evidence-based practice and therapy, she explains, quotes, at least two strategies are available to clinicians selecting management techniques for specific individuals. The approach that is advocated by evidence-based practice is to refer to research reports describing the benefits of a particular treatment. The question asked in this case is, is this treatment beneficial? In the absence of adequately documented clinical efficacy, which is where we're at, clinicians may select treatments based on theoretical soundness. The question asked in this case is, should this treatment be beneficial? This second method of treatment has potential for success if the clinician has a clear understanding of both the nature of the targeted impairment and the therapeutic mechanism of the selected treatment technique, end quote. For the remainder of the article, she tutors us about muscles and muscle impairments, weakness and, and disrupted muscle tone, as well as the neuromuscular treatments. 
She does active exercises and passive exercises. It's an excellent article, especially on oral motor. Now, her second article, Heather Clark, 2005, Clinical Decision-Making and Oral Motor Treatments. And it's actually an ASHA leader article, not a journal article. This more informal article is along similar lines as her 2003 journal article. And toward the beginning, she states, quotes, Although the rationale for adopting oral motor techniques varies depending on the specific techniques and the clients for whom they are selected, I believe a basic philosophy leads to the adoption of any oral motor treatment. That is, we know that speech and swallowing are motor behaviors, i.e. they involve movement. And that disrupted, and I'm putting in a bracket here, via known or unknown neuromuscular impairments, in bracket, or immature movement control, and I put in here delayed speech development, may interfere with speech and swallowing effectiveness. Accordingly, we might expect that alleviating underlying motor impairments, okay, that would be for the motor-based, or facilitating motor system development, in other words, building capability, will bring about improved speech and swallowing function. For this philosophy to lead to sound clinical decision-making, clinicians must have a thorough understanding of the nature of neuromuscular impairments as well as the treatments purporting to address such impairments. Sure, that makes sense. And she continues to enlighten us about muscle strength, tone, and endurance, as well as assessment, impact of impairments, and treatments. Very informative. And since that time, she's written other helpful articles on working with muscles. She's amazing. So I don't see anything wrong with those two articles that Dr. Loff cited. Um, He cited another one, Forrest 2002, Are Oral Motor Exercises Useful in the Treatment of Phonological Slash Articulatory Disorders? And I think Dr. Forrest was one of the first to review the extant or the existing studies of the relation between oral motor exercises and speech production in children, as well as to examine the motor learning literature to gain a broader perspective on the issue. And that was a quote. Following is her description or interpretation or definition of oral motor exercise. And here it is, quotes. A ubiquitous definition of what constitutes an oral motor exercise does not exist. The term has been used to designate a variety of oral, lingual, mandibular movements that range from articulator wags to push-ups to activities that include blowing bubbles or on horns, end quotes. First, she reviews the limited published evidence of the relationship of oral motor proficiency and phonological slash articulatory disorders, and she calls that PAD remediation. In her oral motor review, she cited only articles that included experimental controls, and therefore she cites two. And they both focused on, interestingly enough, myofunctional therapy for tongue thrust and S. And that was Overstake, 1976, and Christensen and Hansen, 1981. They both reported positive results. Continuing on, Dr. Forrest states, Clearly, there is a need for more experimental studies of the effect of non-speech oral motor treatment on changes in speech production. She was true to her word. She and Dr. Siegel did their comparison study in 2008. She also investigated studies on motor learning, part-whole speech training, the use of strengthening tasks with children in therapy, and the use of normal development patterns as a therapy guide. Interestingly, these also happen to be three of Dr. Loft's concerns, and I don't know who came up with these talking points first, Dr. Forrest or Dr. Loft, and it really doesn't matter, but they are coordinated in their views. We'll address these concerns in part four of the Perfect Oral Motor Storm podcast. And also the use of developmental patterns in therapy will be addressed in part five of the Perfect Oral Motor Storm podcast, and it's called The New Wave. And the fourth article that Dr. Loff referred to, Kamhi, 2006, Treatment Decisions for Children with Speech Sound Disorders. Now, Dr. Kami's article reads like a newsy official blog to me (laughs) that was perhaps motivated by the induction of evidence-based practice. He says, 
I came to see that evidence-based practice was much more than simply using research to guide clinical practice, end quote. Now, that's pretty cool. And he continues, there are several myths that have become associated with evidence-based practice. Evidence-based practice is not simply using an intervention approach that has research support. Evidence-based practice is the integration of the best research with clinical expertise and client values, end quote. Also, quotes, another myth about evidence-based practice concerns the nature of the evidence required to support a treatment approach, end quotes. For example, he cites uh, YLVISAKER 2004. He says, the strongest evidence for a clinical decision is experimental validation with the particular client. This evidence could come in the form of trial therapy, diagnostic teaching, or dynamic assessment, end quotes. This statement reminds me of Dr. Loft's survey results, remember? His survey resulted in 92.7% of the SLPs having observed improved non-speech oral motor skills, and 86.3% of them had observed improved speech productions. Hmm. Insightfully calm, he continues, he says that making treatment decisions is not easy. There is no simple prescription for choosing an intervention approach because clinical expertise and client values will vary. Boy, that's for sure. And the remainder of the article is divided into nine sections. One section, theoretical perspectives, it's called, included three paragraphs on the oral motor approach. And that's out of seven full pages. Let's focus on his three paragraphs on oral motor. Quotes, the use of oral motor exercises is based on the assumption that poor oral motor control and or strength, okay, contributes to poor articulation and that the complex motor coordination required for speech can be facilitated by breaking down this complex behavior into smaller units. And he kind of quoted Forrest there in 2002. I would say that he is interpreting motor and treatment as the first motor definition, i.e. neuromuscular slash muscle substance therapy. Then he also briefly discusses the association between early oral development and speech development and how the two are not associated. I've never understood how anybody can believe that, but we're going to be covering the use of development topic in detail in a later podcast. And lastly... He also cites concern over lack of evidence supporting the use of oral motor exercises. He cites Clark, 2003, Forrest, 2002, and also Tyler, 2005. And that's an article about preschoolers, phonology, and language disorders. So I don't know. So the aforementioned four articles, along with Loft's 2003 article, represents the extremely weak research foundation that Drs. Loff and Watson put forward in their 2008 survey article as to the empirical evidence against the use of oral motor therapy, or their term, ENSOMS. Let's shift gears. Many researchers in 2008 and 2009 wrote unfavorably about oral motor. The waves swelled into a flood of unconstructive negativity, in my opinion. The Sweet 16 research articles propelled the perfect oral motor storm to a whole new level. We're going to discuss more research within that appropriate time frame. We're not going to discuss all of it. You know, don't worry. Yes, we're going to discuss oral motor, but also a couple of other relevant topics that impact us as SLPs individuals that work with children every day, especially in the schools. We're covering kind of a global view of research reviews in speech-language pathology. And I believe as a result of evidence-based practice, and this is a good thing, that there has been a significant increase of evidence-based systematic literature reviews in our field. The results on therapeutic approaches within these reviews have been mixed. Some have not been as positive as one would hope, but all recommended a need for additional substantive research. Here comes lots of information in a big category. And the category title is ASHA, Evidence-Based Systematic Reviews, EBSRs. 
Since 2005, the American Speech-Language Hearing Association, ASHA, in conjunction with ASHA members, has conducted evidence-based systematic reviews, or EBSRs. EBSRs are formal, and I put in high-quality, assessments of the body of scientific evidence related to a clinical question and describe the extent to which various diagnostic or treatment approaches are supported by the evidence. And you can go to asha.org forward slash research forward forward slash EBP forward slash EBSRS forward slash. There have been several EBSRs done. Now I've selected four systematic reviews in addition to oral motor, okay, that may be of interest to you. Two were outlined briefly, fluency and auditory processing, and two are presented in greater detail, language therapy and service delivery models in the schools. Then we'll discuss the oral motor research reviews. Now, bottom line, before we get into all this, it is difficult to prove in a laboratory setting with research criteria and constrictions that what we SLPs do in therapy is effective within any therapy, within any disorder. Here's information, some brief information on the Fluency EBSR, and it's called Effectiveness of Interventions for Preschool Children with Fluency Disorders, a Comparison of Direct versus Indirect Treatments, and it was actually in 2010. Frymark et al. Okay, here's what they did. They looked in 22 electronic databases, and they searched between the years of 2005 and 2010. Okay, because two other reviews had been conducted by both in 2006, that's a, that's a name, and Herder in 2005. 62 abstracts were initially identified and reviewed. Four met preliminary inclusion criteria. Upon review of the full texts, two more were eliminated. Ah, dear. So they ended up with two. They posed six clinical questions to the remaining two articles. Their conclusion? Quotes. Currently, there is insufficient evidence to support or refute the use of direct intervention approach over an indirect approach in the treatment of preschool children with fluency disorders, end quote. Here is the auditory processing EBSR, and it's called Auditory Processing Disorder, APD, and Auditory Slash Language Interventions, an Evidence-Based Systematic Review, and that's by Fay, F-E-Y, 2011. 28 electronic databases were searched and yielded 25 studies for analysis. Results. Some support exists for the claim that auditory and language interventions can improve auditory functioning in children with APD and those with primary spoken language disorder. Okay. Conclusion. The evidence base is too small and too weak to provide clear guidance to SLPs faced with treating children with diagnosed APD. But some cautious skepticism is warranted until the record of evidence is more complete. Clinicians who decide to use auditory intervention should be aware of the limitations in the evidence and take special care to monitor the spoken and written language status of their young clients. End quotes. Okay. The following are literature reviews for language therapy, service delivery, and oral motor therapy. We have Kieran and Gillum, 2008, Karen et al., 2010, and that's an EBSR. And then we have two evidence-based reviews for oral motor therapy, and I'll talk more about those when we get there. Now, please note, not to be omitted, Drs. Leon Gibbons in 2015, their oral motor treatment review, as well as Dr. Kent's in 2015, his narrative review, and Dr. Moss's 2017 speech and non-speech article will be addressed in the final fifth wave, the new wave. This document, the fourth wave research data, only includes articles published within the specified time frame around the years 2008, 2009, as well as 2010, to exemplify the wave of the number and type of articles that emerged within that short time period. Okay, so here we go with the evidence-based review for language therapy. Now, during the time when numerous anti-oral motor articles were being written and when evidence-based practice came into vogue, a comprehensive analysis of language intervention studies was done by Curran and Gellum in 2008. 
And if you work in the schools, you may want to read this article in its entirety. Okay. And there's some detail here, but it's interesting. They detailed a systematic review of articles published since 1985 on the outcomes of language intervention practices for school-aged children with spoken language disorders. To be included in the research review, the students had to be school-aged, kindergarten to 12th grades, with language disorders as a primary disorder, students with secondary language or communication problems, for example, autism, were excluded. And the study had to be one of the following design types, a randomized clinical trial, RCT, meta-analysis of RCTs, systematic reviews, uh, and that's referred to as level one evidence, non-randomized comparison studies, or multiple baseline single subject design studies, which is referred to as level two evidence. All right. Initially, they located 593 published reports, but only 21 met all four of their selection criteria. 11 of the studies limited participants to children in kindergarten and first grade, and the results were tenuous at best. Here's the results. Our search yielded only three level two studies of interventions designed to treat aspects of syntax and morphology in school-aged children. Our search yielded six studies of interventions designed to treat aspects of semantics, vocabulary, concepts, and word finding in school-aged children. All six studies were level two, non-randomized comparison studies. Our search yielded only two studies of interventions designed to treat aspects of pragmatics, conversation, discourse, and narratives that met our criteria. No studies were located that examined the efficacy of language intervention with students with language disorders in middle grades or in high school. They said this is a major gap in the language intervention evidence base and is especially problematic for SLPs in school settings. They identified other gaps. Only two of the 21 studies examined the maintenance of treatment effects. The lack of research on whether various language interventions produce lasting positive results in school-aged children is a major gap. Proof is especially critical as SLPs face increasing mandates to demonstrate their effectiveness. They continue on. Another major gap in language intervention outcome research for school-aged children is in the area of narrative treatment strategies. Given the theoretical and practical importance of students' narrative skills to literacy, it is surprising that we found no level one or two studies that investigated the effects of narrative-based interventions with school-aged students. Also, the lack of evidence that relates to the use of curriculum-relevant materials and general education standards in language intervention and on the effects that language therapy has on students' progress in the general education curriculum, like reading, writing, math, is especially problematic for SLPs who work in schools. Another major gap in the evidence is that no studies were found that examined the amount and frequency of intervention required to make significant progress on language targets for the child in schools. Whoa, man, oh man. They concluded the fact that only 21 studies out of 593 met our criteria means that there is relatively little evidence supporting the language intervention practices that are currently being used with school-aged children with language disorders. And they discussed the clinical implications. Now, to their credit, they did not tell therapists to stop doing language therapy because it's not supported in research. Thank you for that. Now, here's another category, the evidence-based systematic review for service delivery. The purpose of the investigation, and this was Kieran et al., 2010, was to conduct an evidence-based systematic review, EBSR, of peer-reviewed articles from the last 30 years about the effect of different service delivery models on speech-language intervention outcomes for elementary school-aged children. And EBSR is a comprehensive overview of the scientific literature on a specific clinical question. And in this case, oh, a set of 16 questions. Now, also, according to the ASHA 2008 school service data, the pullout model continues to be the most prevalent model used in SLPs in elementary schools. 
Okay, here was the method of Kieran's 2010 study, Research Review. A systematic search of the literature was conducted between September 2007 and February 2008. 37 electronic databases were explored, and they asked 16 clinical questions. And I'm going to give you a little sense of what the questions were like, okay? Here they are. For elementary school-age children, ages 5 to 11 years, what is the influence of the speech-language pathology service delivery model on... Number one, vocabulary. Number two, functional communication and so on. Three, sound production intelligibility. Four, social communication. Five, language and literacy. Six, narrative discourse. Seven, curriculum standards. I'll stop doing the numbers. Referral of rates to special education. The appropriate use of language facilitation techniques by parents, teachers, assistants, and caregivers. For elementary school-age children, 5 to 11, here's another question. What is the influence of the frequency slash intensity of speech-language pathology services on, this is number 10, vocabulary, number 11, functional communication, and I'll keep doing them without the numbers, speech sound production and intelligibility, social communication, language and literacy, narrative discourse, and number 16 is curriculum standards. Okay, so they had 16 good questions. To be included, the studies had to meet the following four selection criteria items. The studies had to contain original data that specifically addressed one or more of the 16 clinical questions. They had to be published after 1975 in peer-reviewed journals and be written in English. They had to use one of the following design types. And it's kind of the same as before, randomized clinical trials, meta-analysis, non-randomized comparison studies, blah, blah, blah. And the studies had to include children ages 5 to 11 years of age. They originally identified 462 articles, okay, and then 255 made the initial cut. Full text articles were reviewed, not just the abstracts, and 250 were out of 255 excluded when they did not address one or more of the clinical questions. Those were good questions. Or they did not use an experimental design. A total of five studies remained that matched all inclusion criteria. Wow. Here are the results. Of the five studies, three addressed the influence of a service delivery model on vocabulary skills. One addressed the influence of a service delivery model on functional communication. And three addressed the influence of a service delivery model on language and literacy outcomes. Two of the studies addressed more than one of the clinical studies. No studies were found relevant to the remaining 13 clinical questions. Wow. Clinical implications. Based on the results, direct speech and language intervention procedures implemented in classroom settings have not been tested adequately to determine their effectiveness. Some evidence suggests that classroom-based services are at least as effective as pull-out intervention for vocabulary and may facilitate generalization of new skills to other natural settings. Okay, that's good. All right. Filling gaps in the evidence base. And they offer four things. They found no studies that met the criteria that investigated outcomes for students who received regularly scheduled direct intervention services in their general or special education classroom compared with treatment of the same type of intensity in pullout settings. This was surprising, given the amount of literature and expert opinion articles promoting classroom-based intervention models. Here's a second one. Research is also needed to identify the optimal combination of service delivery variables to fit different needs of different students. Here's the next one. There has been almost no systematic study as to the effects of the frequency, number, or length of speech-language treatment sessions, treatment intensity, or how different schedules of service affects the student's communication performance. Oh, boy. And here's the fourth one. In addition, they were surprised to find that even the basic question of speech and language treatment in group therapy versus individual therapy remains largely unanswered. Conclusion. The current evidence base does not justify any broad conclusions about which service delivery models are preferable for which the elementary school-aged children with which specific communication needs. 
the optimal combination of service delivery variables, such as intervention, setting, dosage, and service provider roles, is likely to differ for individual children. Amazing, right? You'd think there would be some research there validating what we do. Let's move into the evidence-based reviews for oral motor therapy. Now, there are those that assume that the topic of oral motor is the only type of therapy that relates to the often repeated phrase, there's no evidence to support oral motor therapy. (laughs) No, we just learned of some. Sadly, if we look at the literature reviews on other topics, just like we did, realistically, there's very little quality research evidence to support much of what we do with our kids and adults every day. Hopefully, the design, the research designs and results, and our therapy improves. I do have to say oral motor is the one topic that has advanced to a whole other level of scrutiny and into a perfect storm, if you will, and and from debate to controversy to a battle, as stated by Comhey 2008. He said, I hope that the guest editor, Gregory Loff, of this issue will continue to lead us in the ongoing battle to reduce the widespread and indiscriminate use of insoms. It is my opinion that the insom escalation has widened the gap between professors and researchers and therapists and clinicians. And this has been and continues to be very detrimental to all of us in our field and to our clients. Let's move into the oral motor reviews. Two literature review articles on non-speech oral motor treatment are summarized and critiqued here. One is a 2008 review, one is a 2009 review. Let's begin with the 2009 review. And that was the Macaulay et al. Evidence-Based Systematic Review. Effects on non-speech oral motor exercises on speech. And that is an EBSR review, very high quality review. Then the other one is Lassen Panbacker, 2008. That one was, I'm going to say, more informal. Okay, (laughs) all right. Let's do Macaulay first. Here we go. They say, because of the absence of systematic reviews on the effectiveness of oral motor exercises, OMEs, at the conception of this series, they say, the documented interest by clinicians in oral motor exercises and controversies about their use with a variety of populations, a systematic review on this topic was considered timely. So that was nice. They they did this. Purpose was to examine the current state of evidence for the use of OMEs, oral motor exercises, in speech treatment. This article focused solely on the impact of OMEs on speech. In particular, it focused on three clinical questions concerning outcomes commonly addressed in clinical practice. And here they are. One, what is the influence of OMEs on speech physiology, for example, acoustic, kinematic, and articulatory placement? Two, what is the influence of OMEs on speech production? Three, what is the influence of OMEs on functional speech outcomes, where functional speech outcomes were measured addressing the impact of the speech production errors on communication? They use the following definition. OMEs were operationally defined as non-speech activities that involve sensory stimulation to or actions of the lips, jaw, tongue, soft palate, larynx, and respiratory muscles that are intended to influence the physiological underpinnings of the oral pharyngeal mechanism to improve its functions. I like that, actually. They may include activities described as active muscle exercise, muscle stretching, passive exercise, or sensory stimulation. Okay, here's their method. The systematic literature search was conducted within the years from 1960 to 2007, so 47 years. Criteria had to be published in a peer-reviewed journal written in English, contained original data addressing one or more of the clinical questions. Studies that incorporated mixed treatments were excluded. They searched within 21 electronic databases and other sources using 71 keywords that related to oral motor exercises. They did a massive search. A total of 899 citations were initially identified. Of those... 553 were excluded because they were not a study or did not address one or more of the clinical questions, That and that left 346 citations. Of those, 
250 were excluded because interventions did not meet the definition of oral motor exercises, or mixed treatment was provided, or they did not address one or more of the clinical questions. That left 96. The final cut yielded 15 studies that met the full criteria. Results. Of the 15 studies that met the inclusion criteria, eight addressed the effects of OMEs on speech speech physiology, that was question one, eight addressed sound production, that was question two, and five addressed functional speech outcomes, question three. This total exceeds 15 because several studies addressed more than one of the clinical questions. And here's discussion, and this is verbatim and paraphrased. The difficulty of examining OMEs and speech production is multifold. Very few articles have been published examining the efficacy of non-speech oral motor activities toward improving speech production. Many articles could not be included. They targeted the use of OMEs with other treatment approaches. Several narratives were not included. They provided a summary of techniques but did not address the efficacy of any particular approach. And even within the small corpus of studies, there are problems interpreting the results. There is much variability among the populations, types of OMEs, and outcomes investigated. For example, the participants ranged from infants to elderly adults. The participants exhibited a wide variety of medical diagnoses and communication disorders, including mild articulation disorder, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, stroke, cleft palate, traumatic brain injury, tongue thrust, and oral or oral pharyngeal cancer. The type of OMEs and interventions used in these studies were equally diverse. Oral stimulating plates myofunctional therapy, range of motion exercises, strengthening exercises, sensory stimulation, and blowing and sucking exercises. They said, attempting to generalize the finding of such a disparate group of studies for clinical decision-making is not only problematic, but ill-advised. Conclusions. Insufficient evidence to support or refute the use of OMEs to produce effects on speech was found in the research literature. Discussion is largely confined to a consideration of the need for more well-designed studies using well-described participant groups and alternative bases for evidence-based practice. As mentioned in the discussion section, the Lassen Panbacker Literature Review article, we're going to look at that here, the 2008 was published as this article was being finalized, they said. And although both articles addressed similar topics, the overlap between the two was minimal. Of the 15 studies included in Lass and Panbacker's article, only three are common to this EBSR. Here's my critique. I must admit, I'm not surprised at the diversity of OME clients and participants, their ages, diagnoses, and disorders and the range and variability of types of oral motor techniques. This EBSR underscores the wide range of how oral motor is interpreted and applied. It's not just blowing bubbles and puffing out your cheeks. They didn't say that oral motor doesn't work. They said, like the conclusions in so many of our areas of therapy, that there is insufficient evidence to support or refute the use of oral motor exercises. The following statement is admittedly an overgeneralization, but it is not, I believe, too far from the truth. And here's the statement. Oral sensory motor techniques can be modified and applied with anyone who has a mouth. And when you're a therapist, that's a positive thing. Now, I've chosen to briefly summarize three of the 15 EBSR studies that they found. Here's the first one. It's by Carl Stedt. C-A-R-L-S-T-E-D-T et al. 2007. One SLP and two dentists. And it was a longitudinal study conducted in Sweden. Okay, the purpose of this 2007 study was to study the effects of palatal plate, P-L-A-T-E, plate therapy on oral motor function during a four-year treatment period. Four years. The patients were 20 children with Down syndrome. Mean age was 24 months. Procedures. Each of the 20 children were randomly assigned to a palatal plate group, nine kids, or to a control group with no palatal plate, 11 kids. 
all children in both groups had been enrolled in the same oral facial physiotherapy program from birth. Oral facial muscle function was documented using videos of the face at baseline after one year and after four years. The palatal plate containing a stimulating button anterior to the A line to influence tongue position and increase tongue activity. I'm thinking the A line was probably the alveolar ridge. The results? After one year, there was significant improvement in mouth closure and in reduction of tongue protrusion. Ooh, good. These variables also increased after four years, but not significantly. Interesting. Conclusion. The results indicate that palatal plate therapy in combination with oral facial physiotherapy may have beneficial long-term effects on oral motor function in Down syndrome children. Okay. An interesting comment by the author. Quotes, continuous oral facial stimulation at an early age is important for Down syndrome's children. In Sweden, this is initiated and performed by speech and language pathologists in habilitation centers, end quote. They see the value of oral sensory motor. Good for them. Maybe I'll move to Sweden. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, here's another one. Here's a second one by Ray, 2003. This is effects of oral facial myofunctional therapy on speech intelligibility in individuals with persistent articulatory impairments. This study examined the effects of oral facial myofunctional therapy on speech intelligibility in adults with persistent articulation impairments. Clients, six adults between 18 and 23 years of age. Therapy, received myofunctional therapy for six weeks. That's not very long. Results, five out of six clients made significant progress in changing their oral postures mm -hmm, and speech sound production across all three speech production tasks, single words, sentences, and spontaneous speech. Speech intelligibility increased significantly in all clients except the one diagnosed with developmental apraxia of speech. Okay, that makes sense. Discussion. Oral facial myofunctional therapists, SLPs, and other professionals need to rule out underlying oral facial myofunctional variables when targeting speech sounds for intervention. Speech production tasks may be considered as important measures to understand the efficacy of oral motor therapy in clinical settings. And the third article. This is Logaman et al., 1997. Speech and Swallowing Rehabilitation for Head and Neck Cancer Patients. Wow. Surgical procedures to remove cancers in the oral cavity and oral pharynx typically restrict the motion of remaining lingual and oral tissues. Hmm. They conducted a pilot study of range of motion, ROM, exercises for speech and swallowing with 102 surgically treated oral and oral pharyngeal cancer patients. Wow. All 102 received therapy for speech and 92 also received therapy for swallowing for three months. All were given instructions by their SLP on how to perform ROM, range of motion, exercises for the lips, tongue, jaw, and larynx, as well as other types of therapy for speech and swallowing. The patients were asked to do the tasks five to 10 minutes, 10 times daily, if possible. They were seen for follow-up. Data was collected at one month and three months on understandability of speech, percent accuracy of consonant sounds, oral pharyngeal swallow efficacy, OSPE, on liquid, and OSPE on paste. Results. Significant differences were found between the two groups of patients with respect to both global swallowing measures. Differences in speech intelligibility approached statistical significance. In all three measures, patients who performed range of motion exercises exhibited significantly better function as compared with those who did not do the exercises. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's it for Macaulay's findings. And we're going to move into Lass and Panbacker, uh, the second one here in the oral motor section. 2008, the application of evidence-based practice to non-speech oral motor treatments. Lass and Panbacker proposed the following definition or perhaps description of non-speech oral motor treatments. And they call them NSOMTs. And some T's is what I'll say. Here's what they say. 
Hensomtis focus on non-speech movements of the speech mechanisms such as exercise, massage, blowing, positioning, icing, sucking, swallowing, cheek puffing, and other non-speech activities. They have been used by SLPs for many years to treat a heterogeneous group of speech problems, including cleft palate, dysarthria, autism, voice disorders, phonological disorders, dysphagia, and hearing loss. Purpose. To help SLPs apply the principles of evidence-based practice to NSOMTs to make valid evidence-based decisions about NSOMTs and thus determine if they are viable treatment approaches for the management of communication disorders. Right from the start, it seems a little skewed, okay? Their method and results. A total of 45 articles or slash reports published or presented between 1981 and 2006 were included in this review. And they looked on Medline and Cumulative Index to Nursing and Allied Health Literature. Um, And they said that there's 45 articles or reports. I only counted 40, 20 in Table 3, 11 in Table 4, and 9 in Table 5. They state that the search strategy yielded nine articles concerned with NSOMTs that were published in journals. Hand searches yielded another 36 studies. 20 were published in a variety of peer and non-peer-reviewed journals. Okay, in their Table 3 publication of reports in journals, they list right at the top nine reports, okay, from, get ready, the Advance Magazine, Advance for Speech-Language Pathologists and Audiologists, okay? Regarding that, I question why the nine items were included from the Advance Magazine in the first place. The asterisk items below the table indicate that the nine advanced magazine articles were not peer-reviewed. Of course they weren't. They were articles in an informal professional magazine. Okay? Now, they also, in Table 4, and that's their evidence for NSOMT's speech outcomes, they list 11 sources. And honestly, it's difficult to validate the listed items as six out of the 10 were papers or poster sessions presented at an ASHA convention. One was an unpublished doctoral dissertation. Two are available online only as abstracts, which leaves two articles that can be accessed online and read in their entirety. So I'm going to give you just a brief uh, summary of the two articles. And one is, and we referred to this earlier, it's the Christensen and Hansen article, 1981, and it's called An Investigation of the Efficacy of Oral Myofunctional Therapy as a Precursor to Articulation Therapy for Pre-First Grade Children. Now, this article has stood the test of time and usually makes the cut into literature review articles. It's it's a good quality study. It's also one of the three articles included in the Macaulay EBSR. Subjects, 10 children who had completed kindergarten and were going to be entering into first grade. Six boys, four girls. Mean age, six years, two months. All children tested and selected had visually and acoustically distorted S and Z, two Two or more other interdental tongue tip sounds. Three, interdental tongue positioning when swallowing. Okay. The 10 children were equally divided into two groups and received 22 individual half hour sessions once a week for six weeks, then twice a week for eight weeks for a total of 14 weeks. Group one received only articulation services for the full 14 weeks. Group two received only tongue thrust services for the first six weeks, then alternating sessions of tongue thrust and articulation services for the remaining eight weeks. Here's the important results. Subjects in both groups made essentially the same progress in correcting tongue tip sound placement, remediating S and Z misarticulations, and remediating general articulation errors despite the fact that group one subjects had 22 sessions of articulation services compared to group two's eight sessions. Since the other 14 sessions for group two were tongue thrust services, these subjects had the advantage of of achieving significantly more progress than those in group one in remediation of the tongue thrust pattern. And the second article by Gusty, Braislin, and Casella. I probably slaughtered those names. 2005, a preliminary investigation of the efficacy of oral motor exercises for children with mild articulation disorders. Participants, four children, two boys, two girls, six years, four months, six years, nine months. All had a mild speech disorder. Child one 
F for TH and V for TH, child 2, W for R and frontal lisp, child 3, W for R and frontal lisp, child 4, SH, S for SH, and W for R. Now, typically, I don't even work with kids with an R issue until maybe 8, 9, maybe. But here we are, six and a half, working with these kids. Okay. Each child received 15 half-hour sessions over seven weeks, two children in two groups. Each one received an oral motor protocol taken from Easy Does It for Articulation and Oral Motor Approach, and that's Strobe and Chamberlain, 1997. The tasks were comprised of general facilitation techniques. Here we go. Rope pull, squeeze football, jump up and down, bite block, face pats, etc. And direct facilitation techniques. For example, mustache press, lip stroke, pucker resistance, tongue base press, tongue spread. At the conclusion, no changes in any of the child's speech was observed. How come people do and they treat oral motor exercises as fancy sound stem. This is the type of study that confines the characterization of oral motor therapy and mistakenly implies that oral motor therapy is a random grouping of odd activities that have nothing to do with speech. No one is surprised at the therapeutic outcome. Okay, then you also have Panbecker's table number five, and many of these were effective. Beckman et al., um, Beckman in 2005 and, and several others. Ray again, 2002, 2003, where they had positive outcomes. In their summary, they conclude evidence is either weak based on reports of clinical experience and opinion or lacking to support NSOMTs for the treatment of speech sound disorders. Uh, just for fun, I counted the number of sentences in this article that said to the effect, there is weak or limited evidence to support the use of NSOMTs. <laughs> I came up with 20 sentences. In my opinion, this is not an unbiased literature review or an analysis of the literature or a reasoned application of evidence-based practice in NSOMTs. Okay, it's not reasoned. It's biased. Now, I have to say on a personal note, I have followed Dr. Panbacker's work for several years. In fact, she was one of the original authors that wrote about tongue thrust. I purchased her tongue thrust analysis and therapy program back in the late 70s. Go figure. Plus, I also know that sadly, Dr. Panbacker passed away in 2015. That was the same year that Pam Marshalla passed away. But I have to say, thank you, Dr. Panbacker, for a long and distinguished career. Now, my conclusions regarding the research data, as said in almost every article, yes, we definitely need more targeted and professional research studies. But I add, let's conduct them by consulting experienced SLPs. Maybe even they do the therapy. No offense intended to our graduate students. I was one once, but I'm not sure they know the nuances of therapy that can actually make a difference. After all, Therapy in a lab setting is different from a real therapy room setting. Also, I was a bit amazed and highly concerned that the content of the two oral motor literature review articles that were apparently conducted around the same time had so little overlap. Only three articles. Thing is, Panbecker's bias and negative views and conclusions about NSOMTs and overgeneralization of oral motor therapy are the ones that are most often cited, not the more balanced, reasonable, ASHA-involved, evidence-based systematic review by Macaulay and colleagues. Although some have tirelessly tried to restrict and denigrate oral motor therapy as only the haphazard use of play tools to generate speech sounds, there is much more to the methodology of working with the mouth and its components, as the positive research results indicate. And that's a good thing. All clients and their needs are unique, as our therapy must be. Oral motor therapy is malleable and adaptive, but each one of us must know what we are doing and why. Our strategies must be embedded in well-researched associated theories. Otherwise, we are just doing haphazard, throw it up against the wall and see what sticks, therapy. And that isn't helpful for anyone. Hey, busy SLP, Char Beauchart here. Here's a tip from me to you. Every week, become a lot more informed. Sign up for Therapy Matters at charboshart.com. It's free. 
Learn our tick and language tips and techniques and tons of ideas for making your school therapy life easier and more effective. I've been a therapist for 30 plus years and I love to share what I've learned. Sign up for Therapy Matters, read it or listen to it at charboshart.com. You'll be glad you did because the therapy that you do matters. Sign up now. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.